The Mac Observer's Mac Geek App, episode 820, for Monday, June 22nd, 2020. folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Gab, the show where you send in your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We mix it all together. We mash it all together. We string it into an agenda. The goal being that each and every one of us learns at least five new things every single time we get together. Sponsors for this episode include a longstanding one and a new one, linode.com slash MGG and sunsoil.com slash MGG. We will talk about both of those shortly, but here for now in Durham, New Hampshire, still I'm Dave Hamilton. And here in Fairfield, Connecticut, this is John F. Braun. How you doing today, Mr. John F. Braun? Good. Good. Uh, happy uh, Father's Day. Hey, thanks, man. I appreciate that. Yeah. it's yeah. Uh, yeah, we record this on Sunday, so th I, that very much. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, yep. Yep. I'm actually uh, hosting a small family event. Exciting. Is that that's yeah. is this a, a first of your family sort of intersecting your social yes. circles? Yeah, cool. Mm -hmm. That's cool. That makes yeah. sense. Yeah, got all sorts of gifts queued up from events past that didn't happen. So, oh right, that's right. You didn't celebrate yeah, your birthday, birthday with your family. Birthday, birthday, right. Yeah, right. You and your family has lots of birthdays that that sort of happened in in, in this period we've just been through. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, three of us are April, and oh, yeah, my right. sister is in, uh, not. So it's not. Yeah, right. Okay. Oh, it's an exciting day. All right. Well, let's let's get this show on the road here. Uh, yes. Yeah. So Scott, you know, we love learning five new things, and I I especially love it when they're accidental. And Scott says, uh, "Do you know about the Post-it app from the fine folks at Minnesota Mining and Manufacturing?" AKA 3M. So not only does Scott tell us about an app, but he tells us what 3M stands for. And up until this moment, I had no idea, John. Uh, Scott continues the app is exactly what you think a post it note manager, except this one will let you create groups of notes, notes, write notes out longhand, and then attempt to OCR your handwriting, and it doesn't do a bad job. You can also take pictures of post-it notes that you have uh, already written, and the app will help you manage those too. It works on iOS and iPadOS, but the version for iPadOS, uh, if you have an Apple Pencil, is really the best way to use the app. It will also sync between devices it's a really cool app, and the absolute best thing about it is that it comes at my favorite price, free. And as Scott says, free is the best way to not get caught. And when I was digging into this, I thought that it um, also came for the Mac. Yeah, it's there's a, a Mac App Store link at and Google Play as well. So, um, so we'll, obviously the links in the show notes already. So you, uh, you folks can check it out, but thank you, Scott. That's great. I already learned two things at least. Mm -hmm. So it's good. We're off to a good start. Uh, if we can hit five in the next five minutes, that's, that's it, right? We, we, we just get mm -hmm. to bail and we're done, right? If we hit our five in the first five minutes, <laughs> uh, it's a very, it's an asterisk in the contract. I think, I don't know, somewhere. Uh, I remember using three M floppies. 
Remember the, remember those good old days? I do remember those good old days. Yeah. Yeah. 3M and Elephant were the two floppies that we used. <laughs> and cutting a notch in the disc so you could use the other side. With a hole punch. Yeah. You had to do it so perfectly, though, because otherwise you'd cut mm -hmm. the disc and then mm -hmm. no bueno. But, right, right. Right. Yeah, exactly. All right. Uh, good. Okay, let's uh, let's keep moving here. We will go on to listener Matt, who I really need to build a shortcut for archiving these things. Uh, Matt says, "Hey guys, uh, I recently wrote you. Where are we here? Yeah, this is the right one. Yep, recently wrote you about my syncing and backup reevaluation. As part of that, I also decided I was tired of having such a collection of chat apps and calendars to deal with. You see." I have no less than five Google accounts with one calendar. I need to be able to do uh, busy searches on. Can't trust that in uh, any of the calendar applications I have tried. Anyway, with a couple uh, Google chat accounts, three Slack accounts, a Google voice account and various other things I need for this working from home time of our lives. All this stuff was taking up way too much of my screen real estate. A Google search netted a few options. The winner in my case is an open source app called Biscuit. Basic, basically, I have a single window with all the different web-based versions of the apps I need. It seems to be some sort of modified Google Chrome browser, but it works quite nicely at eatbiscuit.com. Uh, and uh, it, yeah, it's interesting. It looks like a browser where each tab is sort of remembered and sandboxed from the others. So if you log into a Google account in one tab, the other tab doesn't inherit that login. You get to kind of silo these things. Maybe siloed is, I don't know, sandbox silo. It's probably all the same, but yeah, it's interesting. I, I like kind of like that idea. And, and again, the same, like he pointed out, the same would be true for Slack and any of those things. Although Slack, usually your logins are consolidated across one account, but, but even still, yeah. Pretty good. Any, uh, anything to share, John, on that one? No. Okay. Michael brings us to, uh, to uh, well, he brings us back to something new. He said, since I first heard of Don Melton's scripts for video transcoding here, I thought I would let you know that he has some new ones called Other Video Transcoding. If you haven't seen them yet, I have been using them and they are much faster. And he gave us a link and also an article that Jason Snell over at Six Colors talked about on it. And he's totally right. Like, yeah, so Don... Don's an interesting dude. Don worked on the uh, on Safari for years at Apple. In fact, I, I think he was on the team that brought us Safari and then maintained it for a little while. So Safari WebKit, you know, very talented programmer. Very uh, he he he's a he does a Westworld podcast too with Kelly Gamont, and I think he does another one called uh, I forget what it's called, but he does with or he used to do with Renee Ritchie. But um, Don is Don is a, an interesting dude and a very talented programmer, and he likes to convert his videos to store them in whatever library, probably in iTunes or music or videos library. But Plex works as as well with all of his scripts, and he recently has, as of December, and I I missed this when it happened, but um, uh, so thank you, Michael, for pointing this out. And and this this one uses. Um, automatically selects a platform specific hardware video encoder rather than relying on a slower, like sort of universal software encoder. So it, if you have a GPU that would make things faster for doing these types of video encoding or re-encoding, 
it will use it and it like it can be you know double or even five times as fast depending on on what you have and how you've been doing it previously so yeah thanks michael that's good stuff that, that replaces the the old ones so very very cool john you want to take us to bruce i will take us to bruce uh bruce has a a nice little thing he told us about regarding encrypting files on a mac kika K-E-K-A, is an app that you can run on your Mac that creates encrypted zip files. Much easier than doing it from the terminal, which uh, we talked about recently. Um, free from their site or three bucks on the App Store. Um, and I checked it out, and yeah, there's a, it supports, uh, I think, nine or ten different formats. Yep. Um, and it also has, uh, in the preferences, uh, things that uh, Mac users may want, so you can ignore certain portions uh, of a file. Oh, uh, I also nice. found it. Yeah. Like ignore DS store and, and stuff like that, or the, you know, certain forks. Right. Uh, right. What else did it have? Oh, and it also had what, what caught my attention is that, um, zip files, uh, encrypting or providing a password. Uh, the question is what kind of encryption are they using? And the thing is, um, the default, what they call encryption probably is not like industrial grade, but okay. what you can do, or at least this one actually has a checkbox saying, uh, if you want to use AES 256, which is a, you know, good algorithm, um, hard to crack. Um, you can make that selection as well. Mm. One of the dialogues. So no, cool. Cool. That's great. Awesome. Sweet. Thank you, Bruce. Uh, we just had a note in our chat room at live.macgeekcab.com. From Kiwi Graham, who points out that BusyCal, certainly my favorite calendar app, is now available, or the Mac version of it anyway, is available via SetApp. So that's cool. That saves, oh. if you've got a SetApp subscription, that saves you a ton. That's great. Um, I also noticed recently, John, although it happened on April 1st, I'm not convinced that April 1st is the right day to make a real announcement <laughs> about things that people might actually care about. Uh be that as it may, the folks at Cloudflare on April 1st announced uh, DNS for families. So Cloudflare's 1.1.1.1 uh, DNS has long been a favorite of ours here at, at Mac Geekab. They do a good job of uh, you know, making it fast and available and all of that stuff. So as an alternative DNS, it, it's certainly one of, if not our favorite, depending on you know, the day of the week. But they've added two variants of it. Now, 1.1.1.2, if you use that as your DNS, it gives you the same DNS, except it's got their malware filters in it. And 1.1.1.3 can block both malware and adult content right there. And there are alternatives. So there's a, a you know, the standard IPv4, an alternative IPv4, and then an IPv6 and an alternative IPv6. So you can cover all your bases with uh, with Cloudflare DNS if you want to do it that way, which is nice. I've always appreciated that they offer an IPv6 version of their DNS. Not all of the alternative ones do, and that can cause things to sort of leak right on by any of these DNS filters of that sort. So, yeah, I was, I was stoked when I found it. And I pointed it out in one of our staff meetings and everybody was like, oh, that's cool. That's brand new. We should write that up. I'm like, well, you know, brand new two and a half months ago, but whatever. Mm -hmm. We've had some things going on in the world that, you know, may have caused us to miss these, these sorts of things, John. I don't know if you noticed, mm -hmm. but yeah. Yep. yep. Uh, <laughs> listener Alex 
uh, brings us to, well, it's WWDC time. In fact, the day that this episode is released later today will be the keynote and, and the State of the Union and all that. John, you and I may wind up doing a, a keynote and State of the Union sort of uh, thoughts episode, I'll call it. Uh, maybe, but we'll, we'll, we'll see if, we'll see if that happens. Uh, Alex points out that, uh, the, there is a website called WWDC notes, uh, that goes through most, if not all of the sessions, uh, at WWDC notes.com and summarizes them. So it's essentially, you know, TLDW, right? Too long. Didn't watch. And so here's what you need to know about all of these different sessions. And presumably they, they have all the WWDC 19 ones up there now, which are still very helpful um, and still very relevant. Hopefully they will also do WWDC 20. So I figured that was good, timely stuff. And we will absolutely put that in the show notes for everyone. So good. Yeah, John. Cranking along. Cranking yeah. along. Okay. It's on my calendar. Yeah. Same. Yeah. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be, uh, it'll be interesting. We haven't really talked about any of the speculation, but we don't do a whole lot of that here, but it, I am curious to see if and how Apple decides to roll out this, this Intel to Apple or Intel to arm transition uh, with their CPUs on the Mac. So could make the iPad pro a very interesting device if it can run Mac OS. So, mm -hmm. right. I mean, you know, so we'll see. We'll find out. Uh, yeah. yeah. But they've done it before. They've done it before. Absolutely. Yeah. 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 Twice. I remember when they moved away from, uh, I remember when they moved away from power PC and I can imagine the uh, discussions between Apple and uh, Motorola where right. know, they're like, yeah, you don't like our chips. Well, what are you going to do? Like run it on a different chip? And it's like, yeah. Yeah. That's <laughs> the idea. Yep. Mm-hmm. So I'm yeah. sure they've they've had this in their lab for well, some I mean, time now. They've been running, uh, you know, Apple chips or ARM chips, depending on how you just what name you want to throw on them, mm. for a very long time in you know in the iPhones and iPads and in your Mac, right? Uh, an ARM chip exists in your Mac because you have a little iOS device that Apple calls the Touch Bar. Oh, all right. So like if they're already there or it, it, the touch bar, yes, maybe, but def, but the T2 chip, one of those things, I and mean, they, it, mo it might oh, both right. be the same, but, but yeah. So my Mac too, I guess the T2 chip has it. Yeah. So, all right. Uh, we'll find out more and then we'll report what we think about that. Jeremy brings us back to cool stuff found and says, I heard about two things from uncle Leo over at twit thought I would share them. The first is called audiomass.co, and it's a web-based audio recording and editing suite. Uh, so that's very interesting. I haven't dug too deep into it, but it certainly looks like it's amazing what we can do in a web browser now is really what it comes down to. And, uh, and this looks, you know, full featured enough for many things, John. So, uh, mm. yeah, I know it's pretty crazy. And then the second is another audio editing program, uh, as Jeremy says, with a twist. It's called Descript.com, and it descripts your audio into text, so it transcodes it, which you can then edit. But when you edit the text, it edits the audio, too. So presumably it's the thing where if you, you know, if, you, if you'd say, well, 
let me, you know what? Let me say that again. What Descript does, like I could go and then edit that text out and it would edit my audio to that point and, you know, boom, we'd be good to go. So that that's wow. very interesting. I know. I know. So two cool ones for sure, Jeremy. Thank you for, for mentioning those. And uh, on the audio front, Dave uh, Ginsburg, who, whose show I was on this week, actually, I'll put a link to that in the show notes too. I was on his um, In Touch With iOS show on Thursday with him and Warren Sklar, which was a blast. Um, the Levelator is now in the Mac App Store. Longtime podcasters will remember that Doug Kay and his team at the Conversations Network, which I think at the time included Michael Gohagen, who was doing the Real Reviews podcast, uh, and we're going back like 14 years, came out with this piece of software that they called the Levelator, which does a lot of things that you would want to do to a podcast uh, in terms of the audio before we get it to you. It normalizes all the levels. It applies compression to make sure that the levels don't go all over the place. It does it in a multi-band way so that you're not getting too much low end without some high end. It, it like just does all of this sort of very generic processing that you would want to do. And we used it here at Mac Geek Gab for years and even like figured out a way how to script it, even though you weren't supposed to be able to script it. We like extracted it from its package and like did all this stuff. Um, and then finally we moved on to a thing called Auphonic because it was clear that, you know, these folks weren't, weren't doing this anymore. Well, recently Auphonic from it, it appears to be still related to the conversations network is uh, is available in the Mac App Store. So we'll put a link to that in the show notes. I haven't messed with it. I did download it just so I've got it and can kind of keep an eye on any updates that are happening. But um, but yeah, it's fascinating. So yeah, it is good. It is good. Uh, any thoughts on that, John, before we keep trucking here? We've got, oh, I don't know, half, half a dozen. Yeah, welcome back, Mr. Cotter. Uh, uh, okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, let's see. Jim uh, brings us. Oh, yeah. Jim says, I had been looking for a HomeKit editor for a good long while because I've wondered if the Home app has been hiding things from me. Specifically, he says, I was having trouble with a Chamberlain garage door gateway and a Hue Hub. Each product has their own view of their own HomeKit data. And while the Home app provides Apple's quote unquote clean version, he says, I accidentally came across the ConnectSense app while installing a few of their outlets. Lo and behold, the app showed me more of the HomeKit entries than I was able to see by any other means. And yes, there were duplicate entries for both my Chamberlain and Hue Hubs that I was able to delete using the ConnectSense app, and it fixed a lot of my problems. He says, you can also do uh, value change rooms and stuff. It's not a perfect app but uh, just something for the toolbox. And he's right. There is like, it, it would be great to have a home kit debugger or diagnostics app or something because everybody, you know, the, 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 um, I think uh, I'm trying to, the, the Eve app, right. From the people that spun off from the Elgato, which is still a company, but not the same thing. But the Eve app is another one of those, but none of them provide like this com this cannot uh, common sense connect sense app. One really nice thing is it shows you all of your rooms and their devices in one list. So unlike the home app where you've got to like be like, okay, which room did this new device that I just added? Where is it? I can't find it. And you got to like jump around from room to room. 
this app shows you everything. So you can just scroll through a list and be like, okay, there it is. Now I want to edit it and put it in the right room and all of that stuff. Um, I, it would be great. So if anybody knows of any others uh, that to add to the toolbox to sort of see and manage HomeKit data, please, Mac, iOS, we're, we don't care. Send them to us. Feedback at MacGeekab.com. We'd love to, uh, we'd love to share those on the show. So thank you, Jim, for starting this. Feedback at MacGeekab.com. I did say feedback at MacGeekab.com. That is correct, sir. Uh, the the Sonos Move, which is, I think, one of the best outdoor grilling poolside accessories you could get. It is a Sonos speaker. It is wireless, has now an 11 hour charge uh, is up from 10. They they figured out some stuff and software they could do to, to tweak it. Uh, that came from their learnings with the new Sonos Arc that we have. We've talked a little bit about, but we will talk more because I have some. I have been doing some learnings on the uh, home theater and Atmos front, and I have some things to share, but we will, we will wait another, maybe, maybe only another week. I just want to make sure I get all my facts together, but the Sonos move great. You know, like I said, poolside grilling outdoor thing, it's your Sonos speaker. So it has the ability to connect, you know, via Wi-Fi and be a, a fully fledged participant of your Sonos environment, including having voice assistant support. So you can either enable the Amazon a lady or the Google assistant in it. Um, it's an airplay speaker. So you've got that. And for the first time it is Sonos's Bluetooth speaker. So you can switch it to Bluetooth mode and take it away from your house and Wi-Fi network. And it still works great. Uh, it now comes in white, but it's not the same white, John. And this is the thing I love about Sonos the same way that I love this about Apple they tried their normal white in a in the move because it initially it's in this it's not black it's like a gray, charcoal gray uh, but they tried white and they said it worked great outdoors for a summer season like the, the, you know it didn't fade or anything but it looked unnatural because nature doesn't provide us with anything that is pure white so they came up with something that they call lunar white that looks better outside. It looks more natural outside. It looks like a white. But I love that they like actually care about this stuff. Like, you know, it's similar to what Apple does. They're very, very similar companies in that they keep their product lines, you know, very, very concise uh, and, you know, say no to more things than they say yes to. But but they're intentional and, and you know iterative design and all that stuff. So, so anyway, that's now available in lunar white. And I, I'm excited about that. I don't have one, but uh, I mean, I have the, the, the old one, but you know, the not old, but the other color. That's what I should say. But anyway, mm -hmm. there you go. You want to, uh, Synology came out a, with a thing, right, John? Yes, they did. Um, little story on my end here. So I, I have two Synologies. I have a, uh, 918 and a 1618, I think. Um, Synology, some Synology NASs, um, like my 918, actually have NVMe sockets, so you can put a cache in there. And uh, I remember back, you know, when I got these, uh, you know, I ordered a, a couple of these SSDs uh, to cache, and so the, the the 918, like I mentioned, had the slot there, and I, and when I went to the 1618, though, Dave, and opened it up, I'm like, where are the, the sockets? They don't have sockets. Mm. What they did have in there, Dave, is a little um, PCI um, uh, slot 
where you can plug in an expansion card. Sure. Um, and this is nice. And, and I think at the time, though, they only had they had two options. Uh, one that would give you uh, NBME sockets and one that would give you a 10 gig connection. And I was like, yeah, you know, I'll look into that later. Well, sure. they just released, Dave, a card that does both the E10M20 T1. Oh, who thought of that? <laughs> <laughs> so, um, so that's kind of nice if, if you want to get on the uh, cash and uh, uh, 10 gig bandwagon. Uh, you can do it with them. Yeah, that's cool. I, that's I, and and really smart of them, and also speaks to them as a company that thinks about what people with their older products would need. Because you could do these things if you just you know threw away your old NAS and bought a new one that has these capabilities right there in it. But like, th th I appreciate that they you know think about people with their their you know sort of longer product lines like that. That's good. That's good. Mm -hmm. Cool. Uh, on the NAS front, I found uh, two relatively new features from QNAP. Uh, one of them is called Hybrid Mount, which is they call their hybrid cloud file-based gateway. So what you do is you mount the public cloud storage on your NAS, and then you can attach to that uh, share as a share, right? So via like AFP or SMB or, you know, however you would attach to that as a share, but it doesn't necessarily sync your entire public cloud, like your Dropbox or, you know, whatever it might be down to the, uh, the, the NAS, it just syncs what it needs. And so, but it shows you as though on your local network, it shows you everything as though it's right there. And when you need it, it goes and gets it and it keeps a cache and all that stuff. So I thought that was pretty cool that it just sort of manages it. You don't have to install this on all of your machines and it just goes and, and everything is there. So I, I, that I thought was cool. And then another one that they call uh, virtual JBOD or VJBOD, where you can use multiple networked QNAP NAS units to expand the storage space of one. So if you have two or three QNAP NASs, you don't have to mount them as um, you don't have to mount them as as, uh, you know, like shares and, and manage your storage that way. You just say, great, go that blob of storage across the network on that unit, expand this bunch of disks here and we're good to go, which I think is pretty cool. So you've got virtual storage pools across your network, which why not? You know, I mean, if you've got a like, you know, even a one gig network is probably enough for most of the things that we're doing. But but certainly a 10 gig network between your NAS devices. Well, you know, what more do you need? So I thought that was pretty cool. You know, um, yeah. So I throw those out there. You know, it's good. Um, one last thing, John, that came up uh, is a couple of weeks ago, maybe a couple of months ago, we talked about the Starling Home Hub which allows you, it's a little, you know, box that you put on your network and it connects the, uh, all your nest devices, your thermostats, your, your, uh, the things in the sky. I mean, it's not really the sky smoke detectors, all of that. Then CO2 detectors, all that stuff. Um, nest is not compatible with home kit out of the box. I know it's frustrating. Well, this Starling home hub, uh, for 89 bucks makes your nest, HomeKit compatible. 
Now, I had been doing HomeKit compatibility with um, with HomeBridge for Nest for a while, but that was a little wonky and it didn't quite give me everything I wanted. We heard about this Star this Starling Home Hub from a listener, and so I got one. And oh my goodness, it like it it is the way to do this. If you've got especially a significant number of Nest things, including you know their their cameras, like because you know you've got your you know all that stuff. Uh, pull it all in together. You can manage how you want it to appear. There's a web interface for the Starling home hub that setup took just a few minutes. It was really quite simple and, uh, and it works. It's, it does exactly what you would want it to do. And I've had it running for, I don't know, two or three weeks now. And I haven't thought about it other than a, the day I set it up because I was aware of it and touching it and plugging it in and configuring it. Uh, and then every time I edit my Nest stuff in HomeKit, it's like, oh, that's right. I'm doing this because of that thing. It just works. There's no wonkiness that I've experienced or anything. So uh, if you're if you're in that boat, highly recommend checking it out. So there you go. Start, we'll put a link to that in the show notes. Yeah. Nice. Yeah, man. <sighs> All right. Uh, we have a bunch of questions that I am excited to get to. And the other thing that I'm excited to get to, John, is our two sponsors for today. So if it's okay with you, I would love to do that. Okay. All right. Our first sponsor today is a new sponsor, and it is Sunsoil at sunsoil.com slash MGG. Sunsoil makes CBD oil that is USDA certified organic I have mentioned on the show before that I've been using CBD for several years now to treat some facial pain that I had from a result of that Bell's palsy that I had like longtime listeners will remember 12 years ago, 13 years ago, I found that CBD really was the thing that dealt with this pain. And lately I've been using Sunsoil because they came on board as a sponsor and we've been testing it out. I've been using their drops which have been fantastic. They flavor their drops. I've been using the cinnamon flavored drops. It's full hemp extract, but it doesn't really taste like it. It just tastes like cinnamon and it works great for me. It really, and it's because Sunsoil keeps it simple. Most of their CBD products have two simple ingredients, coconut oil and hemp. And it's amazingly affordable. A 1200 milligram bottle from Sunsoil costs me a third of what I pay elsewhere. These people provide all kinds of transparency. You can scan the QR code on the bottle with your phone so that you can see the test results. You know exactly what you have. Like it's down to the bottle. They're down to the batch anyway. And great pricing. And the pricing gets even better because you can get Sunsoil, who makes pure and simple CBD products at an unbeatable price, for 30% off your first order by going to sunsoil.com slash MGG. That's S-U-N-S-O-I-L dot com slash MGG for 30% off your first order. Go check it out. Our thanks to Sunsoil for doing what they do and for sponsoring this episode. Our next sponsor is Linode at linode.com slash MGG, where you get a $20 credit added to your account to use however you want there with their servers, because you're going to want a server for something. If you're listening to this show, you're either a geek or on the path to becoming one. 
chances are you've already got some ideas in mind that you might want to play around with on a server. Well, Linode knows what they're doing. They figured out all the things you need to worry about when you're building a server and they just do that. That's their business, right? That's why they do what they do. So, you know, we talk all the time about how they have native SSD storage and it's all on their 40 gigabit network with industry leading processors. You can pick from any of their 10 worldwide data centers. They have their great cloud managers. So you don't even have to use a command line if you don't want. You just spin up the type of server you want. And we talk about that all the time. And all of that is true. But the reality is you don't have to worry about it because Linode has already worried about it. So just go to Linode.com slash MGG. You get that $20 credit. Their least expensive server is their Nanode for just five bucks a month. So yeah, four months of a Nanode that you could use for your, your $20 credit. Go check it out. Linode.com slash MGG. Our thanks to Linode for sponsoring this episode. All right, man. Well, Jed has an audio comment for us. Actually, Jed has a question that I think he answered himself, but we'll uh, we'll see to that. So, Jed, take it away. Hey, guys. It's Jed uh, in New Jersey. Hope you're doing well and staying safe. Um, I have a question. I may have started this once before, but I'm going to I'm rethinking it. So, I bought an external keyboard. And I love it. Uh, it has some features that are application specific. And it also like glows in the dark, which is kind of fun. But I have a weird caps lock issue. And I'm not sure if it's the keyboard or not, but it feels like... Actually, scratch that. I am sure it's the keyboard because I brought it to two different machines. Sometimes when I plug in the keyboard and use a specific application, this thing called Avid, which is for video editing, it gets stuck in caps lock or even sometimes flashes back and forth between caps lock and not. I've contacted the company. They were kind of useless. I could, I let it die because I was busy with work. And so I was thinking that maybe there's an application that can override the caps lock with um, somehow. Uh, I can't fix the hardware problem, and I'm unwilling to spend the money on a new keyboard. So I was wondering if you had any ideas for something that might override my caps lock or disable my caps lock. That's kind of where I'm at. That's where it's turned from kind of a very individual use case to kind of maybe a geek challenge. Let me know what you think. Thanks. Yeah, you bet, man. And and like I said, Jed answered his own question because if you go into system preferences, and then click on the keyboard icon in the list and go down to the lower right and click on the button that says modifier keys dot dot dot. You get to pick what which key the computer interprets as caps lock or control or option or command. And that can be super handy to do a lot of third party keyboards. I've never seen the caps lock thing like he's talking about, but clearly it's a thing and Apple has engineered this for it, but I've seen it where uh, option and command, I think are reversed on some windows keyboards. And so you just go in and you, you know, you just change those two and it's like, yeah, okay, good. And you can even have it, you know, like not apply an option to an action to caps lock if you don't want. So uh, thank you, Jed, for the question. And, and also <laughs> thank you, Jed, for the answer. So pretty good stuff. Thoughts on that, John? Nope. Okay. All right. 
Well, then uh, we will go to Michael. And Michael asks, he says, uh, he says, uh, I used Sidecar the other day with my new 16-inch MacBook Pro. And ever since, I have noticed that the formatting of text on Google's site is messed up in Safari uh, with overlap. And he sent some screenshots. And it just looks like the text is is just too big and things are just overlap. It's not fitting on the page. And he says uh, in the search window at the very top of the a, you know, in Apple only shows up like things were just messed up. So there were a couple things that, um, that are good to look at when you have this, we're still not sure if sidecar caused this or if it was just a coincidence, uh, you know, who knows, but every web page you go to in Safari can have separate settings saved by Safari. And they're a little weird to get to the way I get there. Maybe, you know, of a, a secondary way to get there, John is when a web page is up, I click in the sort of white space of the URL bar. I right click there and I choose settings for this website. Um, I don't know. Yeah. You can go to the Safari menu and choose settings for this website as well. If you don't want to have to try and like aim your mouse, just right. But you get a couple things here. You can choose uh, whether or not to use reader when, it, you know, if the site will support that, you can choose whether or not to use any of the content blockers that you have. And for this purpose, you can choose page zoom. And so you can decide whether page zoom is being applied to this particular page. And if so, how much you, oh, there's also some controls about pop-up windows and autoplay and camera and microphone and all that good stuff too. Uh, so that's one place to look for this stuff. Another place is in uh, Safari Preferences Advanced. About halfway down that page, or I, yeah, is an entry for Style Sheet. If you have assigned your own Style Sheet to to your web page, and you can do this if you want a lot of. I know some folks that like want to change the default fonts and things like that. You can do that. But as soon as you do that, things can get really, really wonky on web pages. So making sure that it says none selected gets you back to that default of the, uh, you know, of what Safari has. So those are my two thoughts for this kind of question. John, do you have any thoughts for this kind of question? Mm. No. Yeah. It's a weird one. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, it's weird that it's happening with just one page, which is what bring what brought me to the you know settings for this website thing. Uh, I can't see how Sidecar. That's where you use your iPad as a secondary screen for your for your Mac. Can't quite see how Sidecar would have caused that, but maybe maybe it's loading the page as mobile only. But I don't know. Hmm. I don't know. I will say this: pages. Most web pages these days are built uh, to be what's called responsive. And that means that depending usually on the width of the page, you can also do it based on the height, but more, more often than not, it's based on the width. You get a different version of the page and some elements will be completely gone at certain widths. Some elements will be moved from like a sidebar to a thing at the bottom. And the reason for this is you, so you can load the same web page on a big wide browser in your desktop. And then also on, you know, a much narrower browser on say your phone, 
And yet it's still the same page. You know, this happens when you go to Mac Observer. It, you know, it's www.macobserver.com for everybody. We don't have like a mobile.macobserver.com or anything that you're redirected to. But based on the width of your browser, your browser actually is making the decision as to how to do these things because your browser knows its own width. We just send all the instructions down and it decides which of them to apply. So it's possible maybe in this scenario that his web, his browser window got narrowed and widening it might, you know, open up things. Although Google doesn't generally break. They're pretty good at this whole responsive thing. It turns out, John. So it's probably not it, but just in a general sense, remember that if you, if you want to see what a web page looks like on, on mobile, you can just take your Safari window and shrink it down. There's also other ways in the develop menu. You can go into what's called responsive design mode, and then you can actually pick, I want, this to be like phone or iPad and iPad in the, you know, split screen mode and iPad, like it's great, but um, you can just grab your window and shrink it. So, so hopefully one of those things helps Michael. And if not, hopefully it helps at least, you know, some of the rest of us uh, when we're troubleshooting this kind of thing. I don't know. Any other thoughts, man? No. All right. Why don't you take us to Mike? Mike. Mike writes, again, I turn to you as my ISP frontier support is worthless. <laughs> we're we're happy to help. Don't, yeah. Uh, they told me they don't support Apple Mail and I should use their Yahoo webmail. Well, that's, that's silly. Even though their website has instructions for Apple Mail, Microsoft Outlook, etc. Within Apple Mail, I have a continuing problem of not being able to receive mail after checking all the connection settings to make sure they are correct. I get the message, verify the settings for frontiernet.net. Selecting try again results in the same message. Whenever it does receive mail, I then can't send mail. And the settings are correct. Late Saturday night, I checked my mail on my iPhone and I received my mail. So this morning I checked Apple Mail on my iMac and I could not receive mail. Um, uh, 2015 iMac maxed out in 10.14.6. Attached is a copy of the connection doctor. Any help would be appreciated. I've had this happen before, Dave. Same. And it's upsetting. And that you'll all out of the blue. Well, well, what I've seen is that out of the blue, I'll get a prompt saying, please enter the password for, uh, you know, whatever uh, the address of the mail server is. And I'm like, why are you asking me this? You know, it, it worked before. Why isn't it working now? Um, so there are a few places you can look, Dave, uh, and I think he, he went through all of these here. So one is if you go to mail, preferences, accounts, there'll be a tab, server settings. Um, sometimes there'll be a box that says automatically manage connection settings. You may want to uncheck that because then that'll let you uh, enter stuff manually. So you could do that, including username and password for the server and the port and TLS and all that great stuff. A second place to look, Dave, is if you go to system preferences, internet accounts, uh, sometimes you'll be prompted for your credentials. Um, but in this case, um, here's the final thing to do, Dave. And uh, from what I hear, this, this, uh, this was the winner. Um, your username and password for your mail server is actually stored in your keychain. So if you go to keychain access and then click on the passwords uh, portion, um, you should uh, 
and, and then you then search for for your you know the name of your ISP's mail server, like in this case, you know, Surfer Frontier. Like in my case, I searched for uh, Opt Online. Um, here's what may happen: you may see multiple entries. Uh, for example, when I did this last on on one of my machines, Dave, um, I had multiple com.apple.account.smtv.password and com.apple.account.imap.password entries. So, um, you know what? Whack them. <laughs> Delete them. Yeah. And as it turns out, this seemed to solve the problem here. Now, I don't know why these multiple entries pile up, but I think the reason you couldn't log in is that it was using the wrong set of credentials. That, oh. yelling at him about it. Interesting. And that is synced or can be synced via iCloud with your iOS devices. So that, right. Right. Um, mm -hmm. Oh, I hadn't thought about that one. Okay. I, the thing that came to mind to me is it's possible his mail server limits the number of connections any one account can make in a given time period. And so if you have too many devices, trying to check that same mail account. You know, when he said I could check on iOS, but now I can't check on Mac or I could check on my Mac, but now I can't send on my Mac. Maybe he's hitting some sort of threshold. I don't know what that is for frontier. I know for a while, Google had a very like tight threshold with Gmail accounts, like maybe two or something, you know, two devices. And it was like, but dude, that's not enough. It's not going to happen. Um, I think since they've, they've loosened that, but, but that, it sounds like that also could be the thing, but your point is right about, like, I like, I like that. I hadn't thought about that. This is good. Anything else on this one before we, uh, before we move on? No, just, uh, just hope it sticks. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All right. Cool. Uh, Bill asks, uh, he says, we have an old first gen Apple TV that we were using for almost 10 years. Apple recently discontinued that, and now it cannot connect to the internet without looping internally and becoming useless. Seems odd. I didn't think that, I know that they aren't offering software updates, but I didn't, but anyway, maybe he's got a problem with his. He says, not only that, but the latest uh, iTunes to work with Apple TV one is 12.6, which now cannot communicate with Apple servers. Ah, okay. He says, so it's time for a new Apple TV. Fine. He says, but the new Apple TVs don't contain an internal hard drive in the same way that the original Gen 1s did, where iTunes would copy all of its local media to the Apple TV. So is there a way to make over 60 gigs of music, photos, and videos available on one of the new Apple TVs without spending for a monthly subscription to a cloud service, and preferably without requiring the Mac to be powered on and logged in? So... The first part is totally doable because you can stream directly from your Mac um, if you go and set up home sharing. Now, my experience with home sharing has actually been pretty good. And one of the cool things is it will wake my Mac up when it wants to do that home sharing. So, yes, the Mac needs to be powered on and logged. Uh, I don't know that it needs to be logged in, but probably because I think the music app needs to be running, but maybe not. I forget whether that, that that library is shared if, when you're doing home sharing, some things change, but it definitely will wake up my Macs uh, when it wants to access that content. So that might be the answer for you. In fact, it might be the only answer. However, 
The new Apple TVs do have storage on them, and they allow third-party apps to utilize that storage in a variety of different ways. Uh, I know there are some movie apps that will you know, use it as a cache and that sort of thing. I wonder if using an app, uh, some third-party app to play your music might be the answer here. Because then, even though Apple's app won't cache all your stuff and copy it locally, could a third-party app? I don't know of any, but I'm hoping maybe somebody out there does, and we can turn this into a bit of a geek challenge. Like that—that's my only thought on it, John. Because Apple, you know, yes, you can do it without having a subscription to uh, Apple Music, but your Mac needs to be on it, streaming across your network, not just copying it and keeping it there locally. So. Uh, and Brian Monroe does point out in our chat room at live.macgeekgab.com that home sharing does not require the music app to be launched uh, because it's a system service. So, and it's not baked into the music app or AKA iTunes anymore. So thank you, Brian Monroe. That, that's kind of what I thought, um, but glad to have that confirmed. But yeah, other than that, I don't know of a magic answer here. Any thoughts on that, John? No. Okay. All right. Cool. Uh, you want to, I guess we have a tip from Harvey here that I, that I yeah, somehow baked into one. the middle of the question. So let's go with it. <laughs> All right. So Harvey says about a week or two ago, out of the blue, Safari stopped playing YouTube videos on my iMac 10.14.6, iMac 27 inch 2017. Not always, but almost. Just a blank screen or a blank screen with a message that the video could not be played. I've attached the screen recording, um, all right. um, but they play just fine in Chrome and Firefox. I thought I'd share with you and possibly your listeners how I solved this problem, a solution I stumbled upon in the course of writing an earlier version of this email. For the record, Flash is set to off, YouTube is set to never autoplay, and changing that setting did not correct the problem. I fixed the problem in Safari, Safari Preferences, Websites, Content blockers, where I changed YouTube from on to off. YouTube must have flipped the switch that blocks blockers. He used Ghostery Light, which um, okay, yep, I guess is considered a blocker now. Yep. Um, so there we go. So that's it. Thank you for uh. So that's that's the place to look if you can't play your uh, YouTube videos. Fascinating. Yeah, YouTube, it's interesting all the things that that can cause YouTube to be blocked. We had a problem and we talked about it on the show, but where the um, safe search I had I had in my Synology router, I had safe search enabled network wide and that blocked certain YouTube videos from from being played. I think if they had uh, any like like explicit language, even just one incident of it in, you know, in like a video, like my daughter couldn't watch any of her vloggers or anything. It's like so we had to we had to turn that off. It's different now being in a house with four adults, you know, so it's it's not it's not quite like it was 10 years ago. So, yeah. Uh, yeah. All right. Dan asks us uh, a little bit geeky, which is good. We like that. He says, I have a 27 inch uh, late 2015 iMac, 16 gigs of RAM and a one terabyte fusion drive with a 24 gig SSD. So the small SSD version of the fusion drive, he says the drive is about half full. I'm running Catalina. Things have been slow at times and normal at others. 
I've run things like Etri check multiple times. Sometimes it shows everything is good. Other times it can report problems. I've been thinking about replacing the fusion drive with an SSD, but before making that leap, I'd like to get your thoughts if that makes sense or not. I've thought about getting an external SSD, which I would be using for backups anyway, and try booting from the external to see if I notice enough changes to make it worthwhile. My concern is that this Mac has Thunderbolt 2, not 3, and USB 3 couple of questions. Is there an external SSD with a Thunderbolt 2 connection? Would Thunderbolt 2 as a startup disk be a valid uh, test compared to the internal fusion drive? And is an external SSD using USB 3, uh, would that be a valid test with the fusion drive or is that too slow? So it, it, all good questions. Um, so the, the, the sort of the general answer is yes, booting from that external SSD would be a very good comparison. And quite frankly, depending on how comfortable you are with, you know, extracting and, and, and suctioning your iMac screen off and all of that, that may be enough for you. Like you may be finished at that point. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with that in, in inherently anyway. It's not internal, but I don't know how often you're moving your iMac around anyway. So, um, as for that SSD, external USB SSDs can be great. Um, the, the beauty of USB SSDs is they don't end your Thunderbolt chain. So you can hang them off of, well, if you hang them off your Mac, they generally do end the, the chain just because they don't generally have pass-through. But if you have a dock and then hang USB off of that, you can be in good shape. Um, Thunderbolt 2 <clears throat> devices aren't in great supply right <clears throat> right now and i get all choked up thinking about this but it's good news because apple makes their uh, thunderbolt 3 to thunderbolt adapter which is bi-directional as we found out recently and that means that you can plug thunderbolt 3 devices into your mac if you you know do it right you got to look at the apple look at their website we'll put a link in the show notes um so that you see what how this bi-directionality works it has a thunder it has a USB-C aka Thunderbolt 3 port on it and then a USB or a Thunderbolt 2 mini display port jack on it so male Thunderbolt 3 female Thunderbolt 2 so you've got to think about how that's going to work a lot of people are using these with Thunderbolt 3 docks so you get a your cable from your Mac goes in and now you can connect all kinds of things including even faster USB SSDs, right? So Thunderbolt 3 dock, and now you've got the capability to add, you know, a USB 3.2 or whatever we're going to call that, but, you know, a 10 gig USB drive off of that. That might be the best solution because now you've kind of opened up your world and you have another Thunderbolt 3 port if you pick the right dock, like the OWC or the CalDigit dock. And then there's a new one coming from Anchor that I haven't messed with yet, John. But it's it looks very similar to the CalDigit one. So, you know, I, I, I have high hopes. And hopefully next week we can talk about it. Hopefully they'll have, they'll have gotten one out in time. But, um, but th that would be the path I would take. You know, that machine is not that old. It's five years old. If it's fast enough for you, it's going to be fast enough for a little while. Um, I, I would wait until we hear from Apple what the, you know, next version of Mac OS is going to support before you invest money in prolonging the life of your 2015 iMac. But, we'll, you know, you probably know that before you're hearing this show. 
since there's only going to be a number of hours between its release and your um, your path. But that's kind of where I would go with this. So I think that answers all the questions. What do you think, John? Yeah, that's not too convoluted. It's, it's a little convoluted, but it, it really yeah. isn't bad. It's just hang a Thunderbolt 3 dock off your Mac and go wild from there. It's really kind of the TLDI. Uh, didn't didn't mm -hmm. didn't interpret didn't understand TLDU <laughs> I don't know. <sighs> Any more thoughts on that, John? Mm. Nope. Okay, you want to uh, take us to Ian then, my friend? I will take us to Ian. Sweet. Ian says I'm upgrading some drives in a Synology and wondered how you would go about wiping old drives. Mm. Usually, I would use Drive Genius with three passes, but recently someone told me that multiple passes are a useless, pervasive myth. And he has an article that says as much. So, okay. <laughs> Which you can read. Um, so one pass of zeros will suffice, especially seeing as it was a SHR, Synology Hybrid RAID, member. I don't really like smashing it up option, as that's just e-waste, would prefer to recycle. Um, at least what I've done, Dave. So, you know, if, if a drive was part of a multi-drive RAID array, SHR or some other type of RAID, then the way the data is distributed among the drive, and we, we had a spirit discussion about this in the past, but the, the way the, the data is distributed um, would make it very difficult for someone to obtain a useful data off of the drive. Not impossible though. Um, you know, if you're a Synology guru or a RAID guru, maybe you, you would be able to get some useful data off of it. Um, but I wouldn't make that assumption. I, uh, like him, whenever I retire a drive, you know, like if it's starting to go bad or something, I would just use disutility, um, has a similar option. Um, so if you go in disutility and you, you, you click on erase, there's going to be a security options. Um, and actually, Dave, they changed this from the past. So if you look at it now, it has, the first option is fastest, where it doesn't write to the entire drive, I think it just, you know, uh, clears out the, the directory entries. Sure. Um, but then they have one to the right of it that does something a little different. It says um, it writes random data and then it writes zero. So it sounds like it does two passes. So you could try that or whatever is in Drive Genius, um, you know, that does a single pass. Uh, that's what I do. Yeah. yeah. Smashing the drive. I mean, another option, like you may have seen videos of this, they have these big drive shredders um, or, you know, some people say, well, you know, open the drive and, uh, you know, scratch the platter. And, yeah. Right. And that'll make it so people can't pull data off. But um, that's what I do. You know, just to take the option that does the least amount of writing. Um, and also speaking of drive genius, um, I haven't, used it in a while <laughs> i was gonna say drive genius i does that even like where are we with drive genius i haven't heard from them well, in actually, a while look, to, so we got to talk to them um the thing is drive genius 5 was not fully catalina compatible but i i went to their site and apparently drive genius 6 is aha uh -huh. we, we go oh right yeah, yeah. who knew you go to them yeah okay. but i tried running five and actually uh yeah, it didn't it lost the key or something like that. So I wasn't able to look at the drive genius up. Oh, interesting. But, um, yeah, okay. 
Yeah, I'll I'll uh, I'll reach out to them. That that's great. Dive Genius Six supports Catalina. Who knew? All right. Well, hey, these are things. Good. Uh, John, in the last episode, we had a conversation about whether or not we should set our cable modem uh, passwords to anything from the default. And we got a lot of feedback on this. So you want to, <laughs> you want to summarize this for us, John? I think I could. So, um, yeah, so we had a number of people, um, Bart who, uh, uh, with our friend Allison does a uh, security podcast. He, he wrote in, um, Alex also wrote in and, and sent us a couple of articles. Um, and who else? Yeah, Bob. So, so we had a number of people um, that were very clear on this. You want to, on your router, you do want to set the username and password to something other than the default. Yeah. Now, our speculation, Dave, was, well, you know, why does it matter? You're really the only one that can get to it, right? And the answer is wrong. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree with that on the on the router for sure. And and we were admittedly unclear last week. We were talking about cable modems that are only cable modems because that's what you and I use. But lots of right. people use cable modems that are also their router and Wi-Fi gateways and all of that stuff. And absolutely, if it's if it's doing your routing and and therefore has settings that you can change then absolutely you do not want that at any kind of default password. Right. Because what can happen is a malicious web page, uh, which web pages can run code like JavaScript. Somebody could write some JavaScript that finds your router because, you know, the address of a router is uh, probably somewhat predictable. Totally. Right. Yeah. 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 You're not totally, but, but yes, definitely somewhat predictable. Yes. Yeah. But you could have a piece of JavaScript that, you know, goes to the router, opens up a network connection. And here were the two attacks that were brought up. One was that they could spoof your DNS is that if they change the DNS, which oh. is typically a thing that a router does, you could be going to a place that you shouldn't be. Yeah. Or someone redirect you. Um, to different DNS. And the other thing is that they could uh, install port forwardings. Right. Oh, yeah, uh, for sure. So those are two pieces of uh, really bad news if it happens to you. Right. So. Right. Right. Yeah, for sure. Huh. Yeah, yeah. No, this is it. it I'm glad that we're doing this here. It, it, it's everybody was right about about this. Now, some of the folks that wrote in pushed a little further beyond just the router and said, even with your cable modem, you really should change the password. Um, now, I, you know, again, I'm not, I, I still don't see a huge security risk there because if somebody can log into my, my standalone cable modem that does no routing whatsoever, there literally are no settings to, to be changed in some modems. The worst thing you could do is trigger a, reset by software so it would just reboot your cable modem that's an annoyance but it's not it, i mean I, I suppose you could argue there's a security risk there but it's not a huge one it's just like okay reboot and it came back just the same way and this is by design your cable company does not give you the option to change any settings in there they do not want you messing with it because that's their domain right you know they reach that far into your 
into your network beyond that. It's all yours, but that's theirs. So, um, and it's so that they control, control the speeds and things like that. So, but look, changing the password from a default is, um, is not a terribly bad thing. Like my concern last week was unless you know what that password is like it, it, and, and I think it was Bart even who wrote in and said, look, just write it down on a sticky and paste it to the outside of your cable modem. Like that's fine. Nobody, no malicious web page can read what's on the side of your cable modem, <laughs> presumably, uh, <clears throat> you know, but it, and then that way it sort of solves the, I forgot my password problem. And, but even if you do forget your password on a cable modem, like all you're going to do is factory reset the thing and your cable company is going to see it when it comes back online. It might take a little longer, but other than that, it, you know, nothing else is going to change. So, so yeah, yeah. If you like, th these are these things where it's like, if your eye, eyes completely wide open and you truly know how your network is, you can make these shortcuts. Um, and, and this one is definitely a shortcut. And be totally okay with it. Like you and I, John, I'm, I'm not worried about your network. I'm not worried about mine. I'm 100% aware of these risks. Hopefully now everybody listening is uh, aware enough to make this choice for themselves. But the safest answer in all cases is yes, change from the default password. And, and those of you who wrote in and said that are absolutely correct on this front. So, yeah. Good. I mean, you, and use a password manager. Well, to remember this password, right? Yeah, I mean, it depends. Some of these passwords for cable modems, I've seen them as as like the HT access style passwords, which password managers don't always help with. Mm. But I mean, mm. it does because just because it won't auto enter it doesn't mean you can't just store it in there and then go look it up. Like that's okay, mm -hmm. you know. So yes, use a password manager for so many reasons, including this. So thanks to everybody that wrote in. Yeah, that you're you're all correct on this. Um, this yes, absolutely. <laughs> um, all right, let's go. Let's get a little geeky here, John. Not that we aren't already, but let's change the geek focus. Let's expand it a little bit. Maybe circling back to something we addressed uh, in Cool Stuff Found. Robert writes and says, I'm currently running my Plex server on a 2017 iMac 3.4 gigahertz quad core Intel core i5 with eight gigs of RAM attached to the iMac. I have a Gen 3 Drobo four bay. Uh, he calls it a NAS, but that's not correct. That's just a direct attached storage device with multiple bays um, for all of my Plex media. Okay. He says, my question is, I'm thinking about buying a Synology NAS like the DS1019 plus. We'll talk about that because there were brand new Synology units that came out this week. Do you think there would be enough performance gained from having a dedicated Plex box to justify the cost? Or would I be better off just letting my iMac be the server to do the heavy lifting? So um, the answer is that even with the new Synologies that came out, your iMac is a faster has a faster processor than what you and I are going to get in a Synology NAS. Uh, we've sort of addressed this in our discussions about virtualization, John, on the show, where we found that, uh, you know, the Synology, you can virtualize things there, but it, you know, the CPU isn't really there to be a, comp a, a compute server, right? That box is built to be the storage server. Um, you know, I was looking some, 
Synologies. So, so they have different processors. So Absolutely. The, 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 the one that they have is um, the Celeron and the Atom right. in their low-end units. And those are both, uh, they're on the low end of Intel's product Correct. line in terms of performance. So while you can run a VM on them, uh, now the other thing is Synology does have units that have Pentium and I think Xeon processors. If I was going to do virtualization on a Synology, getting one of those, uh, you know. So you here's may, the thing. You may get acceptable performance. You, yeah, right? That is true. Absolutely. But you're going to pay through the nose for that server because yeah. <laughs> of the CPU that's in it. And that's why I said that right. the, the NASs that, that you and I and most of our listeners would buy for our homes and small offices are not targeted to be compute servers, right? They're, they're targeted mm -hmm. to be storage servers with some compute power. Now, for mm -hmm. a Plex server, it's a little bit different because a lot of what Plex does can be accomplished with hardware transcoding. And that is baked into most of these uh, new NASs that, that are out there. So, for example, I am running the, the one that he mentioned, the DS1019 Plus. That's what I'm running. You're running essentially the same thing. You're running the four bay version of it. I think it's the, the 918 or something, right, John? Is that what you got? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Same CPU in both of ours. It's just one more drive bay. That's the only difference. Uh, well, basically the only difference. I think RAM can be different, but I think we're both at eight gigs. So that part's the same. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, that that is and that up until this week, that has been my recommendation of if you need a NAS, you get the DS 1019 plus you've got five bays, you've got a four core processor can boost over two gigahertz and you know, it's got the hardware encoding. So you can do all the Plex stuff, but you're not going to be doing any, um, you know, real compute tasks. Yes. It will do some software transcoding when necessary and it can handle that. Um, so for what you're doing, you may be fine, Robert, moving to your Plex, processing to a Synology by and large though, you are going to a device with less compute power, not more, but it might be enough because it's sort of tailored to be doing that particular job in that you may not notice a, a, a downgrade in performance, even though technically it is a downgrade. Now, as far as the virtualization, and even if you want, like I know some folks that listen, run Plex on their iMacs because they want the compute power to do, you know, heavy duty transcoding. Like they just want to throw these, you know, 40 gig MKV files at it and have it offline transcode those down to, you know, different, different um, size things so that they can easily quickly transfer them to their mobile devices. And there's nothing wrong with that, but you want heavy duty computing power like you would have in an iMac. And quite frankly, like you would have with Don Melton's scripts that we mentioned earlier in this episode, right? Like those would be perfect for this. Your Synology, you know, your, your small office, home office Synology NAS is not built to do that. Just like it's not built to do compute serving for a, um, you know, for a, for a, like virtualization. But here's the thing. So you could, like you said, John, buy a NAS and QNAP does better in, in this regard in terms of building NASs that are meant to target that that person that wants to do virtual memory or uh, virtualization, not virtual memory. Uh, however, the cost delta there and the same is true for the Synology stuff, perhaps even more so the cost delta there 
you'd be better off buying a Mac mini or if you don't care about it being Mac OS buying like, you know, some other type of computer to be your compute server and then use the NAS as its storage server from across the network. So you can store all your stuff on the NAS. You could even use iSCSI if you want so that you're sort of tricking it into thinking it's local storage and, you know, treating, treating it differently and formatting the, the way the computer wants. But there is a far more efficient and cost effective way to get to having a, a virtualization server with gobs of storage and gobs of processing power than trying to bake it all into one box from a NAS vendor. If you, if you're willing to split it into just two boxes, you can do way better uh, from the compute side of things and from the cost side of things too. So, so that's the, that, that's kind of the enlightenment that I had this week, John, as I was digging into this stuff It's like, right. You know, it's like, why like, I, I want it all in one box because that's cool, but mm, is it really the most efficient way to go about it? Eh, probs not, you know? So, so, you know, th does that make sense, man? Mm -hmm. Yep. Mm -hmm. Cool. All right. Well, we still have time. We're going to keep trucking. Oh, I do want to talk about these new Synology units though, that came out. So they came out, they are trying to simplify the product line. They're getting there. So there is the, there are four that were announced this week. They all end in 20 plus, meaning that they are faster things. That's what the plus means. And 20, meaning they were released in 2020. There is the DS220, the DS420, the DS720, and the DS920. The first two are a two bay and a four bay. The 220 is a two bay. 420 is a four bay. Uh, they have dual core processors in them okay the 720 and 920 are also a two bay and a four bay but they have four core processors in them so that 920 um and maybe the 420 depending on what you want to do they they both have the um the ability to do hardware transcoding and and that sort of thing so you know you're probably okay with either one but um i would not I'm very careful recommending a two bay NAS to anybody. Uh, the extra hundred and so dollars that you're going to spend to hundred, maybe hundred and fifty dollars that you're going to spend to jump from the two bay version to the four bay version, so the four twenty or the nine twenty, is so well worth it. A with a two bay NAS, you are losing one of those drives, so half of your storage to fault tolerance to that redundancy, right? With a four bay NAS, you are losing one drive to fault tolerance. That means a quarter, not half, if you put four drives in. So for the same amount of effective storage, it might in the end actually be cheaper to get a four bay unit and fill it with, you know, smaller drives and having to buy a two bay unit and fill it with these monster drives just to get that kind of storage. In the end, it might actually save you money. It does give you more efficiency because you're actually able to use the striping benefits of RAID to get the higher read speeds that you just don't get with, you know, a mirrored drive because you're just reading from at most two places instead of four. So uh, the 420 or the 920, I, I would lean towards the 920. Personally, I, I'll wait for what would like if they're 
I don't know this, but I'm just speculating based on the past, John. I like a five bay NAS that that just seems to work for me. So my guess is that that would be the DS ten twenty one plus next year because the you know the the nine twenty came out this year, the nine eighteen came out two years ago, the ten nineteen came out last year. So I'm guessing, you know, but um, but for now, yeah, that nine twenty is is the one I'd recommend. So, what do you think, John? Um, look good to me. Okay. <laughs> All right, cool. Well, I'm happy with what I have. Yeah. But and same. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The, the, the CPU beast, beast boost in these is, a, I think it's about 15% faster than what we've got in the, the nine eighteen and the ten nineteen plus. So for listeners out there, if you can find a ten nineteen, you know, and the price, I don't know, I haven't looked, but if the prices on those have come down, uh, that's certainly a, a thing to think about. Yeah. I'm not, when I saw these, it was like, Oh no, do I need to have like, you know, am I, do I have FOMO now? And I looked in, it was like, we well, not only a little bit, you know, like I, I'm not, I'm not interested in needing to replace it. And all of them, except the 220 have the, the M.2 SSD slots that we were talking about before for the caches, which is great. So, <laughs> so yeah, there you go. Uh, let's go. Let's go to David. Um, David asks, mm -hmm. uh, no, wrong one, David. There it is. I'm in the market for a new 24 or 27 inch monitor. I'm connecting my 2018 MacBook Pro. Charging is not a big deal. Is there any advantage to a USB-C port over an HDMI port, which will require a dongle on the monitor? So, um, some of these monitors that connect with a USB-C port or a Thunderbolt 3 port include a dock inside the monitor, right? Which can be a totally helpful thing. Uh, otherwise, no, as long as you're getting the resolution and the refresh rate you want. And I would say 60 hertz at a minimum. And I'm pretty sure your Mac will do 60 hertz over HDMI. Um, the interface does not matter. So, uh, you know, in, in terms of that, I've uh, on the newer Macs, I think I've bounced back and forth between HDMI and, and like DisplayPort or whatever. And again, as long as the, 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 the machine or the, you know, the dock or whatever supports that, that 60 hertz refresh rate, I, I've been fine with either one. So, I, you know, but you might like having that dock in there and it sounds like you know, th that would be your dongle as opposed to having to get an HDMI type, uh, you know, dongle thing or whatever. But if you've got a dock, it might already have that HDMI port and then it, things get easy. So I don't know. The thoughts about that, Mr. Braun. Mm, I got one of each. Okay. Right. Yeah. you got that Mac mini with port. You're, you're, you know, swimming. So I got in HDMI with that. And then the, my other monitor is a display port off of my OWC dock. That's right. You're running the OWC Thunderbolt three dock. Is that right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay, cool. Yeah. I like that one. So I've got in front of me here too. It, it's, they, they, they do a good job with that dock. They, well, they do a good job with everything they do. They're, you know, they're obsessive about this stuff. Um, okay. So, uh, a different listener, David, um, suggested a thing. We were talking in episode eight seventeen uh, about various different, uh, browsers and how, what they were based on that sort of thing. And, and in a conversation that we were having with him, 
he said that he was he appreciated using uh, the Edge browser, the Microsoft Edge browser, uh, because it's getting vertical tab support later this year. And he says, I'm looking forward to vertical tabs as I typically run a hundred plus tabs open in a browser when I'm working on something and they all end up just being little squares with icons in them. And I don't know what they are where with vertical tabs, I can just scroll down the list on the left side of my browser, which is what I do in Firefox with a vertical tab add on. And that piqued my attention because I am someone who likes to have my dock on the side of the screen because my screen is wider than it is tall. And so it's the height of my screen that I am constantly battling with. And if I could move my tab bar from the top of my screen to the side of my browser window, well, I'm swimming in space, comparatively speaking, going wide. So why not? I don't use Firefox. I use Safari and I haven't been able to find a, um, plugin for Safari or an extension for Safari that moves the tab bar. I don't think it's possible, but uh, this is pretty cool. And he found one called uh, tree style tabs uh, as an add on for Firefox. So I, I probably should have saved this as cool stuff found, but, uh, but that's okay. We will, uh, we will get there. So tree style tabs for Firefox gets you those vertical tabs. What do you think about vertical tabs, John? Mm. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll try it. Yeah, it's something to try, right? Like that's exactly it. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um in 816, we were talking about um uh screenshots and and we shared a quick tip where you continue holding down the I think the space bar and you can drag the the screenshot, you know, selection window around. Well, listener Jeff says um you know, may I recommend a far less cumbersome alternative? Apple's built in now into Catalina screenshot application, which is found in applications utilities, but you can also launch it uh, or the important parts of it with command shift five is how that comes up. Um, this lets you draw your selection window and then move it around it. Like this functionality is just baked into the new screenshots functionality in Catalina. So you draw your box, you move it around, you position it, you resize it, you get it exactly the way you want. And then you hit capture and it, guess what? It captures. So, uh, so thank you, Jeff. Yes, you're absolutely right. That that, that is probably a more, uh, a, a less cumbersome and more elegant way to do that. So thank you for that, man. Um, let's see. What else do we have here? I feel like we can squeeze in a couple more of these tips, John. Yeah. All right. Okay. We'll do, we'll do one more. Maybe, maybe two. I don't know. I can, we can get through these and we clean up the list. Uh, the, uh, in, again, in eight seventeen, we were talking about, um, the app that the monitor upon which an app appears. Now you and I use the old style of things. And so monitors and the dock and everything are sort of fixed in place. And that's why I'm able to have a dock on the left side of my screen. Cause it's not jumping around from screen to screen. And Allison wrote in and said, uh, I heard you guys talking about this and whether or not to use spaces on multiple monitors and where to put your dock and whether to have your menu bar on both monitors. She says, I have the dock visible on both displays and the external set as the primary monitor using displays preferences and dragging the little menu bar to the external display. But every once in a while, the system gets confused and a new app launches on the internal monitor instead of the external. 
I'm not sure what boogers it up, but here is the solution. Access the dock from the primary display and drag up or down on the separator at the far right before the trash can icon. This will change the size, so you might want to reverse direction to get it back down to the size you had before. But your apps will now open on the display where you modified the dock. So that's interesting. So that's how you set, which is the primary display dock, whatever, is just adjust the size of that dock. Fascinating. Fascinating. I don't know. That's crazy. Allison did say she couldn't find where to tell macOS whether or not to have the menu bar on both displays. That is the that is a function of choosing spaces on one display versus, uh, you know, spaces as as multiple monitors. If they are, then you have the menu bar on both. If they aren't, then you only have it on on your main display. So that's fascinating. I like it. All right. Um, and since we're talking about the doc, we will take Steve here. And Steve says, I was recently listening uh, to one of your shows from almost two years ago and a couple of recent shows where you were talking about using the dock in multi-monitor mode. I use Keyboard Maestro to open my applications and set up my desktops by application type. I have a 27-inch monitor as my primary display and my MacBook Pro is a secondary display. When I got started with this configuration, my dock seemed to randomly move from one display to another. It was very frustrating and I was at the point of contacting Apple when I discovered quite by accident that by moving the cursor to the secondary screen and pulling the cursor to the bottom of the screen caused the dock to move to that screen. Doing the same on the primary screen does the same. So it isn't random. It's one of those hidden gems in macOS that really helps once you know it's there. So yeah, going to the bottom of the screen, presumably you have your dock on the bottom of the screen, will jump the dock and follow you. So that's cool. I like that, Steve. All right. John, I think we've uh, exhausted our time for today. Do yes. you uh, do you feel the same yeah. way? Yeah. Well, I got to. Uh, yeah, I got, got. You got peeps places, coming over. Oh, not places. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's exciting. It's it's you know it's good. It's good. Well, thank you for listening, everybody. Thank you for uh, spending your time with us. Thank you for sending in all your questions, your tips, your cool stuff found. We so appreciate it because that's what makes this show what it is. Uh, you know how to find us. We talked about that. If you're a premium listener, premium at MacGeekGab.com. We will almost certainly be back with maybe a shorter show in midweek just to take 20 or 30 minutes and sort of share our thoughts so that, uh, so that we're not, A, not waiting a week and B, not packing next week full of all of that, you know, a week later. So, uh, so maybe we'll, we'll figure out a time, John, and we'll stream it live. So yeah, of course, cause you know, that's what we do now anyway. Uh, thanks to Cashfly at Cashfly.com for providing all the bandwidth to get the show from us to you. Thanks to all of our sponsors at, uh, of course, sunsoil.com slash MGG, linode.com slash MGG, smilesoftware.com slash podcast, maxsales.com is where other world computing is, barebones.com and eero.com slash MGG. John, did I miss anything? No. Okay. Cool. Well, I guess that's it, right? There's nothing else to say. Oh, wait, 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 wait. <laughs> there is. There's there's always one more thing to say. Oh. Right? right? And that is have fun. Enjoy watching the keynote if you haven't already. And don't get caught. Made up. <laughs>